Hello there and welcome to the Lancet HIV podcast. Today I'm talking to Greg Gonsalves of the Yale School of Public Health in New Haven, Connecticut. We are going to be talking about research that Greg and his colleague, Forrest Crawford, did into a very well-known outbreak of HIV associated with drug use in the USA. Hi there, Greg. Hi. So the outbreak of HIV in Scott, Indiana, was one of the major news stories, certainly for the HIV world in 2015. Can you remind us what happened? Yes. So in late 2014, uh, about November, uh, a cluster of new cases of HIV were noticed among people who use drugs in rural Scott County in Indiana in the USA, uh, largely around a town called Austin, Indiana. Um, and new cases were diagnosed rapidly that winter and uh, into the spring, and eventually 215 cases were attributed to the epidemic. What happened is that in March 2015, the state of Indiana declared a public health emergency, um, which allowed the establishment of a syringe exchange program to interrupt HIV transmission. Um, but already by that time, there was controversy about the timing of the response to the epidemic. Was it too little, too late? Um, and public health officials and scientific experts, both in Indiana and around the country at that time, had pointed to warning signs of an HIV outbreak in the state. Um, going back as early as 2011, when there was an HCV, a hepatitis C outbreak, occurring among people who use drugs in other counties uh, near Scott County, Indiana. So there is significant criticism of political leaders in Indiana um, for foot dragging, for not acting early to address the infectious disease risks associated with intravenous drug use. And this came from people uh, as, as diverse as Nora Volkow, who's the director of the U.S. National Institute on Drug Abuse, uh, eminent AIDS researchers like Chris Byrer from Johns Hopkins University, who has written a commentary uh, on our article for the Lancet HIV. Um, but the state health commissioner, who is now our Surgeon General in the U.S., Jerome Adams, suggested that many places with HIV epidemics have needle exchanges, uh, and we will never know if an earlier introduction of programs to combat HIV in Indiana would have made a difference. In your study that was published in The Lancet HIV, you've used modeling to investigate the outbreak. Can you briefly explain what this adds to the story previously described in the press and in other, in other research reports? Well... Our study answers two simple questions that people have been asking, well, at least implicitly asking for uh, a while now, in which we didn't believe there had been a satisfactory answer. Um, and many claims have been made in the scholarly literature and in the press by Chris Byer, who I had mentioned, Stephanie Strathy, uh, and Chris wrote an article in the New England Journal. Uh, 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 Josiah Rich from Brown University wrote an article for JAMA. Journal of the American Medical Association, all complaining about the, the timing and the scope of the response. Um, and there's a back and forth in, in many different popular press outlets in the U.S. Um, but the two questions that we tried to answer that we didn't think have been done scientifically yet were, was the public health response initiated in time to make a big difference? Um, so it was what happened in March 2015 uh, done in time? And what would have been the effect of an earlier response? Um, and so what we did is we reconstructed the Scott County outbreak using public, publicly available data and a variation on a sort of canonical mathematical model of infectious disease transmission, which you see uh, all the time in, in public health and epidemiology. And once we have this recreation of the Scott County epidemic in hand, we're able to turn back time to see what would have happened if the simplest inter interventions, just active case finding, had occurred earlier than it did. There's a link in the paper that people will see that 
goes to an interactive web application we've included with our paper. So, so readers can actually go in and turn back time, uh, adjust the timing of the response, the assumptions of our model to see how the outbreak would have played out under different circumstances. Um, and what we offered in the paper is an extremely conservative analysis. We used existing data, as I said. Um, we don't rely on a complicated model that relies on a wide variety of parameters pulled from other places, which people could say are irrelevant to the specific nature of what happened in Scott County. Um, we didn't model the effects of needle exchange on the outbreak in the main analysis um, because it's really hard to pick apart using existing data what the effects would have been uh, of such a specific intervention. We did, that it was not sort of available in publicly available data sets. Um, but if we assume needle exchange reduces HIV transmission, um, which is supported by many studies over the past three decades, the active case finding, which we do look at in our analysis, um, would uh, could be considered as a lower bound on what uh, uh, a comprehensive response to the outbreak might have offered if it had been done earlier. So I think our first our paper is the first quantitative study to address what would have happened in Scott County if officials if um, officials had acted earlier. And I think the answer is there would have been a drastic reduction in the number of people infected with HIV in the county. The paper contains some pretty daunting equations for the non-modelers amongst us. Can you briefly explain, perhaps in simple terms, what the model's doing and how it helps to understand what was going on in the outbreak? I'm going to try to keep it simple and not go through the various equations in any detail, but they, they might look daunting, but they actually represent really simple ideas. Um, what the math does in the paper is formalizes the intuition that everyone knows about how infectious diseases like HIV can propagate in the population. The number of new cases in a small unit of time is proportional to the number of ways the disease can be transmitted from someone who has it to someone who doesn't yet have it, right? Um, and this intuition is the basis for mathematical models that epidemiologists called SIR models, susceptible, infected, recovered models. Um, and these models basically use differential equations to model the, the transitions from each of uh, what are called compartments of susceptible to infectious to recovered um, uh, over time to sort of look at how epidemics evolve uh, uh, in, in simulation. And so what we did is we just took the classic SIR model um, by adding a class of individuals. Uh, we modified it who were not diagnosed, but who were diagnosed, but not uh, yet removed or, or recovered or virally suppressed in the case of HIV. So um, we had susceptible, infected, undiagnosed, susceptible, diagnosed, and then the, remo the removed of the recovered population. And what this allowed us to do is to capture the real-life dynamics of, the, of infection, diagnosis, and the initiation of uh, antiretroviral therapy for HIV-positive people during the outbreak. We're able to use this simple model because there are publicly available data sets that give us clues about the number of people in each category, those who are susceptible, who, those who are infectious but undiagnosed, those who are infected or infectious but uh, had already received the diagnosis and removed over the time course of the outbreak. Um, and this model allowed us to explain what we were seeing in the outbreak dead, but more importantly, it allowed us to ask what might, what might have happened if the response were initiated earlier. So your study results suggest that the epidemic had peaked before substantial public health interventions were implemented. So why would that have happened, that sort of the cases peaked before the interventions? Els Campbell, a CDC researcher in the Journal of Infectious Diseases, um, whose data we extracted from uh, uh, their paper to, to look at the estimated dates of infection already suggested that most of the infections that occurred before a state of emergency was declared in Scott County in March 2015. Um, and the epidemic really takes off based on uh, Dr. Campbell's data in 2014, and it ramps up in the summer of 2014, exploding during the fall and winter. Um, 
And so most of the infections had already happened even before the first clusters of infections were identified. Now, why would that have happened? Um, this is all speculation, but by the winter of 2014, 2015, it's, you know, it's likely that the news had spread of the outbreak. You know, this is a small town called Austin, Indiana, and all of a sudden investigators are descending on it to, to look at the, 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 the outbreak of HIV among the population there. Um, you know, it's also possible that people's drug-using practices shifted spontaneously due to the attention being paid to the HIV outbreak um, and drug use there. Uh, injection networks had been disrupted. Um, you know, as I said, this is all speculation, but, you know, this is what we saw in the early days of the HIV epidemic in big cities like San Francisco, New York City, London, um, is that people reacted to the threat among them uh, on their own and modified their behavior sort of spontaneously. So the peaks happened, but what interventions and what actions were taken at a sort of public health level that helped to eventually bring the outbreak under control? In March 2015, Governor Mike Pence declared a state of emergency in the county. And what it allowed Scott County officials to do, along with local and national partners who helped them, is to set up a needle exchange um, and to start ramping up care and treatment for those already infected. So um, in March 2015, interventions were put in place that could, could stem any new infections uh, uh, or any sort of reignition or reigniting of the epidemic. Um, so you know, if you're virally suppressed with intraviral therapy, you're not going to transmit disease. If you put clean needles into the injecting networks of drug users, you're also not going to sort of pass on the pass on the virus. And so these things are put under put into place uh, in the spring, moving into the summer of 2015, um, which um, made sure that the epidemic sort of, uh, if it had, if it had peaked earlier, it wasn't going to come resurging back or, or or have a new efflorescence. Your model in the paper shows that the outbreak could have been curtailed sooner. Um, could you perhaps suggest what the cause might have been, um, what what interventions might have been implemented when, and, and how small might the outbreak have been? So, you know, outbreaks are unpredictable, uh, but we can make a good guess about how the outbreak might have unfolded had interventions like enhanced testing and case finding and syringe exchange programs been implemented earlier. Um, you know, using the mathematical model we fitted from the actual outbreak data, we can run that model forward under a different set of conditions to learn about what might have occurred if contrary to fact interventions have been different. So, you know, the story of Scott County is really a sad and tragic one. We knew the extent of the opioid epidemic in the state um, by 2008, and this is local knowledge that was well known by officials there. And as I had mentioned earlier, in 2011, there was an HCV outbreak among people who use drugs in the state. And local public health officials, HIV and HCV advisory committees, bipartisan groups of state legislatures were well aware of the risk of future bloodborne viral outbreaks, both of HCV and HIV in the state. And many of these groups and individuals on the ground locally in Indiana had called for the establishment of needle exchange programs and other measures to be ready for the threat. Um, but it didn't happen. Uh, in fact, the local HIV testing facility run by Planned Parenthood was closed in Scott County due to state budget cuts and antipathy uh, of government leaders towards Planned Parenthood's um, other reproductive health activities, which made it hard to identify the outbreak earlier than it, it might have been. So what could have been done? In 2008, in response to the growing opioid epidemic, um, there was the opportunity to enhance access to opioid agonist therapy like methadone and buprenorphine, uh, and it could have been scaled up widely across the state, but it wasn't. Um, in 2011, in response to the HCV outbreaks throughout the state, syringe exchange programs could have been established, but they weren't. HIV and HCV testing could have been scaled up, but they weren't. The sad and tragic story of Scott County is really that we know how to treat opioid use disorder 
and prevent and treat HIV in the U.S. Uh, and around the world. And these tools lingered on the shelf until the outbreak had exploded. Uh, officials then rushed in to respond, which can, you know, we can frame looking backwards as sort of better late than never, um, but we can also call it too little, too late. Oh, so there were a string of missed opportunities, really, stretching quite a long way back before the epidemic even began of HIV. Yeah, exactly. So, as you mentioned then, uh, the outbreak was associated with opioid use. Is this still a large problem in in Indiana, in Scott County, in that area, but also elsewhere in the USA? Do you think other similar outbreaks could occur in Scott County or elsewhere? So, you know, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control has identified about 220 counties in the U.S. with similar risk profiles to Scott County for HIV or HCV outbreaks among people who use drugs. Um, so uh, Scott County is not unique in terms of um, its risk profile, and, and, and CDC has alerted these counties that you know, the risk of an HIV outbreak or an HCV outbreak is, is high among them. What are we seeing? We're seeing a report of an uptick in HIV cases among people who use drugs in Massachusetts and Kentucky and West Virginia and elsewhere in the U.S., these are these are modest ones, um, but you know if you start looking through the literature, you start looking through popular press reports, certain jurisdictions where the opioid epidemic is is uh, rampant in the U.S. is starting to see uh, isolated upticks of HIV. Now, what's important is that this isn't an American phenomenon alone. We've seen several outbreaks of HIV among people who use drugs in Europe as well, uh, and so. The risk of new outbreaks of HIV among people who use drugs is still very much with us, both in the United States and around the world. Finally, what would you say are the key recommendations that come out of your study and from other people's investigations? What would the recommendations be for regions that are at risk of HIV outbreaks related to APOG, similar to that in Scott County? So I think there are four things I'd say to officials and places at risk of new outbreaks of HIV and HCV among people who use drugs. Um, one is we know how to treat opioid use disorder with opioid agonist therapy. Um, so make methadone and buprenorphine as widely available as you can. Um, European countries, Australia, and uh, other places outside of the U.S. have been pioneers in, in doing this uh, compared to many of the places in the U.S. People who use drugs are dying of overdoses at a greater rate than they are of HIV. What is killing people is not HIV, uh, is, is overdose. And you can make sure like, that drugs like naloxone or Narcan a uh, drug that can reverse overdose and save lives is also widely available. Um, the other thing is we can prevent HIV infection. Syringe exchange works, as does getting people living with HIV onto antiretroviral therapy and successfully virally suppressed. Uh, they won't transmit HIV infection when on, when, when on ART. Um, one of the other things, and probably the most important for me, is people who use drugs are our friends and family. They're our neighbors and coworkers. Um, you know, they need to be treated with compassion and respect, not punishment and scorn. Uh, as this drives people away from the services they need. Um, but all of this that I just mentioned takes courage and foresight. The delays we saw in Scott County uh, can create man-made disasters, outbreaks that never needed to occur uh, because people ignore what's happening, surrender to outdated ideological notions about syringe exchange or opioid agonist therapy. It also takes changes in laws and policies that make needle exchange impossible in many places in the U.S. or restricts access to methadone and buprenorphine to specialized clinics or providers in the U.S. Um, it also takes resources, you know, the need for services for opioid use disorder, for public health approaches to opioid use disorder, HIV and HCV, uh, at least in the United States, are grossly underfunded. Um, some of the states with the highest risk of these health problems spend little on health, on health themselves and have refused to expand a public health program here called Medicaid, which could provide these services. 
um, and federal support for opioid use disorder, HIV, and hepatitis C is still not commensurate with the needs of people on the ground. Some very strong messages, I think, come out there and, and very well put across there. So thank you very much for speaking to us about your study today, Greg. You're very welcome. We're very happy that the Lancet HIV is publishing it. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, and uh, I think sort of as you've just explained the story to us here, I think that really helps to shed some light on on the history and, and the lessons that can be learned. So, yeah, thanks very much. Thank you. Cheers.